Oh, you didn't hear me the first time. And welcome to Christmas 2021. Isn't it gorgeous in here? The ladies and Danny did a great job. And, well, you'll read the back page, you'll know. It, it took the church to get this done. So uh, we're just excited that we can focus in this time of year on one aspect of the Christmas story, which is the king is here. Now, I know some of you, the baby's in the manger already. And you're like, <laughs> relax. We have other surprises coming for Christmas Eve. So I hope, I remember, we do. So uh, the king uh, is here, and we want to celebrate that. So we're using the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel uh, as our, our kind of our jump point and as our text this month. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 1. Um, if you were beginning... To tell the story of Jesus, how would you begin it? You might, you know, focus, start on the cross, you know, and focus in on his eyes and the, the agony of that moment and then back out and say, okay, well, this is how we got to that point. Or maybe you'd find some individual whose life was changed dramatically by the story of the Savior and you begin to tell that story and, and that life change, and then, well, how did that happen? But Matthew begins with what? The list of names, of list of names of a bunch of dead people. That's how he begins to explain who Jesus is. He's laid out his thesis statement. We looked at it last week in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. By the way, why David and Abraham? I mean, he could have chosen Eleazar and Aminadab. I mean, they're both in the genealogy. Why not? Because he's trying to do something very specific and very deliberate. He's trying to draw attention that Jesus is a descendant of the two people who have received unconditional covenants. David, a throne and a kingdom, and, and Abraham, the, the whole world would be blessed through him. So there's a purpose behind this opening in, in Matthew, and he wants to show us something. What is it? Well, let's keep reading. I am actually going to read the entire text. I don't have it on slides. I've just decided we probably ought to read the whole thing at some point. So I, we're punting this morning graphically. Chapter 1, verse 2 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Now, it's getting tough. I didn't really practice all of this, so we're going to make up pronunciations as we go along. <laughs> it gets worse. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. 
Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And now it really gets bad. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Verse 17, back to the slides. There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in ba to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, let's be honest. These might not be the best verses to open your defense and your explanation of Jesus as the Messiah, unless you are a first-century Jewish individual. And guess who was going to read this first? First-century Jewish individuals. My reaction to a list like this is, oh, sweet. We have now the Invisibles Christmas edition. <laughs> I thought about it. But it would take us, we'd have to start in June. But if this text is going to make a difference in our lives, we have to understand underneath all of these names, what is Matthew trying to teach us? And to lead us in that direction, I'm going to ask of this text four questions. Number one, well, what do we learn from Matthew's genealogy? I mean, in our modern world, we come across a long list of names, and we just don't know what to do with it. We don't read this passage very often in public. You know, no one said amen at the end. You were just clapping because I made it through the names without botching them terribly. <laughs> now, three years ago, we did read this. Remember when we went through this passage with the cheers and the boos? If you want to do that, we can do it next week if you write on your connect. Let's do it. <laughs> no one mes memorizes this text. I've never heard it put to music. Paul Duncan, let's get a little slacker. Come on. Most of us, we just skim it to get to the good stuff. We want to hear about what's really next. We skip it unless we happen to know a lot of Old Testament history, which is exactly what the first century Jewish reader of this text knew very well. That we find it dry and boring says more about us than it does about the text. So what do we learn from this list of names of dead people? Let's start with a few problems. There are some problems in this genealogy. First, how do you get 14 generations in each of these three periods of time? From Abraham to David, you go home. Don't do it now. Go home and count them. You have to count Abraham as number one or you don't get the 14 gaps. You don't get 14 generations. Okay, we can do that. Not a bad deal. In the second section, you have David to the, to the exile in Babylon. There are 14. Easy peasy. The third one's a little more problematic. 
to get to 14. Because you have to count Jeconiah from the end of the first as, as number 14 in there. He has to also be number one in the second one, in the third one. They don't seem to bother them because the point is symmetry and chronology. Genealogy could leave out a generation. It, it didn't bother them. And so, so Matthew, either he can't count to 14, then why is he a tax collector? <laughs> or something else is going on. 14 perhaps is a memory device. Why is 14 so significant? I, I'm not going to say this is what, I, what, what, what the answer to that is. Because some have said, well, if you, you, know, if you take the, the, the name David and you assign numbers to each of the letters in his name, they add up to, guess what? 14. Okay, he's the king. Okay, maybe. I'm not into that so much. But wherever you land, go for it. It has to be understandable for the first century mind, and it has to be significant to them. So maybe the David thing works. I don't know. Second problem with this is how can Jesus rule with Jeconiah in his genealogy? If, you, if you're wondering that, you're a pretty good Old Testament student. Jeremiah cursed Jeconiah and his descendants, and he said, he was the king, and you, you, your descendants are not going to rule with, and with, prosper, with prosperity while you're sitting on the throne of David. So if Jesus is a descendant of Jeconiah, How's, how's he going to, he's been cursed. Well, how does that work? The best answer is that this seems to be the genealogy of Joseph. And in Luke, you have the genealogy of Mary. And who is genetically related to Joseph? It ain't Jesus. All right? And so you've got here the genealogy, which is he's, he's the son of, of Joseph, but he's not biologically the son of Joseph. And so his genetic ancestry is through Mary. So the curse, therefore, would have no impact. Okay. Third question, why is genea Matthew's genealogy different from Luke's genealogy? This question should have been B, and the one before should have been C. I realized that after the sermon notes are printed and everything was done. So why are they different? Well, I've already hinted to the answer to that. I've actually told you the answer. Luke's certainly, certainly seems to be Mary's genealogy. And Matthew, you get Joseph's genealogy. And what's very interesting in, in Matthew 1.16, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. In that, there, there, he uses the feminine. He uses masculine all the way, son of, son of, then he gets to Mary, and it says of Jesus, he was really her kid. It's very interesting. Very, that was a bonus thing that wasn't prepared for this morning. But Matthew opens, and, and notice the structure. Matthew, boom, you get first thing, you get a genealogy. Where does the, where's the genealogy in Luke? Well, it's in Luke 3. So you've had, you, you know Luke 2. So you've got all of Luke 1, you've got all of Luke 2. At the end of chapter 3, he's ready to launch into his adult ministry. And then you get Luke's genealogy. Matthew starts where? Matthew starts with Abraham. And then he works his way through. And there's these three divisions to David. And then from David to the, to the Babylonian exile, from the Babylonian exile to, to Joseph. What does Luke do? Luke starts with Jesus and goes backwards 
He starts with Jesus and then builds it all back. And how does he end? Luke 3.38. He is the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Whoa. Luke takes it all the way back to Adam. Why? Well, what's his argument? His argument is Jesus is the son of God. So he takes it clear back to Adam who was directly created by God. Matthew's argument is not that Jesus is the son of God. I mean, it's there and it's in the text. His whole purpose is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the rightful heir to the throne of, of David. And so Matthew seems to present his genealogy through Joseph, Luke through Mary. One of them argues for Jesus as Messiah, Abram to David. The other argues for Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus all the way back to Adam. Now, the Jews of the first century world would be a little surprised with our attitude toward genealogies. To them, the genealogy is absolutely essential if you're going to tell the story of the birth of Jesus. It's actually the first question you would ask of Matthew. You, you've got his thesis statement. Okay, my thesis is he is the Messiah. All right? The first question in Jewish mind is, does he qualify to be Messiah? Does he tick that box? Before you go on exploring his character, before you tell me all the things that he said, is he even eligible? Because, you see, genealogies were significant in their world. You could not buy a piece of property without presenting your genealogy. Because you couldn't, if you were from the tribe of Judah, you couldn't buy a piece of property in the, in the tribal area of, of Zebulun. We're not going to mix the tribes. You had to stay in your area to keep the purity. You couldn't just put your money back down and take a deed. You had to bring your genealogy. Genealogies helped determine who was to sit on the throne. The law specified, you know, you got to, that's why in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7, there's all these lengthy lists of people because you got to be, you got to be connected correctly. Genealogy was important in determining who could serve as priest. You had to prove your relationship and your descent from Levi. And that same thing applies to the story of Christmas. You've, you know it very well. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to his own town to register, Luke 2. So you had to go to your ancestral home. How do you know where your ancestral home is? It's through the genealogy. Which is why Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem while she's nine months pregnant. It's Joseph's ancestral hometown, which they knew because they knew their genealogy. So those are some issues we face with this text. But what does this list do for us in trying to understand who Jesus is? Question number two then, why is this genealogy important? Why is it important today? What's the purpose that it serves in Matthew? I mean, you may agree with what I've said, and you still think, oh, come on, this isn't really going to be very practical today. It was important 2,000 years ago. Okay, all right. But today, well, let me try to suggest some answers to that question. Why is this important? First, I think it's important because the genealogy establishes Jesus as being from the royal family of David. It's the central thesis of Matthew as he opens his gospel. Matthew himself, you see, is thoroughly convinced that this Jesus 
is, is the son of David. And he, he has seen Jesus bring matter out of no matter. How do you think he, he healed the withered hand? From a withered hand to a functioning hand. Matthew has seen Jesus. He was there outside the tomb when he calls forth the dead. And he raised him to life. Matthew had left everything he knew while he was collecting his tolls and his taxes on the road on the city outside of Capernaum. And it doesn't seem as if he ever looked back. Last week, we put Matthew into Star Wars lingo. Matthew's the Han Solo of the New Testament. Why? Because he surveyed the landscape, and early on in his life, he said, I don't care about my people that much. I want to make a good living, so I'm going to be a tax collector, and I'm going to extort my own people and, and make a good living. I'm joining Team Rome over Team Israel. And it's his journey from being this selfish guy who's only interested in himself to becoming a sacrificing disciple, a follower of the Savior, that really is the subtext of Matthew. He goes from, I don't care about all this Jewish stuff, to the place where he authors the most Jewish of all of the Gospels. He's going from, I don't care about my heritage and I'll, I'll break all my Jewish laws to make a living to, you know, I'm going to be the one and he is the one who, who ties the Old Testament into what Jesus is doing while he's here on earth. See, the testimony of Matthew, it matters. He was religiously indifferent until he met Jesus and it becomes the barometer. How valid is this whole thing that Jesus is doing? And so he opens with a list of a bunch of names of people who have long died because that's where any skeptical Jewish listener would begin. You've got to tell me, is he qualified? And there's no more questions central in their minds than does he tick the box of the right genealogy. Because God had said a thousand years earlier, you've got to come from the line of David, 2 Samuel 7. And in the first century, Jesus isn't the only one claiming to be Messiah. Read Josephus. There's a lot of people saying, I'm the Messiah. So how do you know who to believe? Step one, check the genealogy. Does he tick that box? If he's not from the line of David, and if he can't prove it, then forget him. He's not the Messiah. And so Matthew begins a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. David's of most importance even though chronologically Abraham came first in history. Because the question isn't, is Jesus a Jew, a son of Abraham? It's rather, did he really descend from the line of David? You want to rule in the house of Windsor? None of us are going to do it. We don't have the right genealogy. Ain't going to happen. You're not going to rule in Great Britain. And the same is true for Christ. His right to the throne is determined by his genealogy. And that's where Matthew begins. That's why these verses are so important. A second reason I think they're important is the genealogy demonstrates that he's got historical roots. He's a real person. Galatians 4 said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the time had fully come, you can read about first century um, history. They're all kind of sensing something's coming, something's coming. 
And the New Testament says when God had perfectly prepared every detail of history, he sent his son at the right time in the right way. And Matthew 1 says it's the right way. These are his roots. He's got a family tree. He didn't just drop out of heaven. He didn't appear magically on the scene. But at the perfect moment in history, he was born in Bethlehem. See, Jesus has a human family. He had a mother. He had a father. He has a history. He's not some fictional character. He's not like the gods on Mount Olympus. He was a real person. And Galatians says that behind it all stood God superintending the whole process. Some of us can actually remember 1977. Alex Haley tells the story of tracing his family from slavery in the U.S. to the African country of Gambia. Roots, the miniseries. He said this journey for him was so significant because he said, I realized when I found my relative that I had roots. I had history. My family, it came from somewhere. See, that's the message of Matthew 1. Jesus had roots. He has a history, a family. He came from somewhere so he could be our Messiah. Question three, and I think this is going to open up some rich application and truth for us. Number three is this. Who are these women in this genealogy? And why are they there? Jewish genealogies don't have women, typically. We read it all, and did you catch it? Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. A woman? Actually, how many are there? There are four, which is very unusual for a Jewish genealogy. But Matthew includes four. Who are they? First is Tamar in verse 3. You want her story? Genesis 38. She is the daughter-in-law so she's, a, she's a Gentile. She's a daughter-in-law of Judah, who was the son of Jacob and the grandson of Abraham. All you need to know about is this. Judah had a son named Ur, E-R, who married this Gentile woman called Tamar. Ur died, and his brother Onan did his brotherly duty. He married Tamar. Then he suddenly died. So there's Tamar. She has no, nobody to care for her. She is husbandless and childless, which is a twin curse in those days. But she was a little bit impatient. So she decided, I'm going to take care of my own situation. And so she schemes. You know what? She, she, okay, she, this is what she does. She gets Judah, her father-in-law, to sleep with her. She dresses up as a prostitute in a temple shrine and... and seduces him, and she gets pregnant. She has twins, Perez and Zerah. And when she confronts Judah with what's been going on, you can, you know, his conclusion is, she is more righteous than I. Um, nobody looks good in this story. It, it reeks of greed and deception and prostitution and lust and everything. But what you can say about Judah, and it's not very good, you cannot by any stretch of the imagination make Tamar look good in this. She's just less bad than her father-in-law. And what she did was evil and wrong and immoral. 
And that's all we know about Tamar. She acts like a prostitute, though she's not. There's not a happy ending. She's a footnote in biblical history and not a very nice one. And the story of her encounter with Judah is the story of human frailty and weakness, of the sinfulness of human flesh. And yet, where is she? She's in Matthew 1, verse 3, in the line of the Savior. That's one woman. Second woman, Rahab. <laughs> you, know, you know the two-word moniker that comes after that. It's always Rahab what? Rahab the harlot. She's a little more familiar to us. She's also a Canaanite who is a hated enemy of the Jews. And she's very famous for what? For lying. So you got a harlot, a Canaanite, and a liar. That's a really good start for including yourself in the genealogy of the Savior. You wouldn't think she had much of a chance of being in this list, but she's there. Her story is tied to the bigger story of Joshua's conquest of Jericho. He sends the spies into into the city, and Rahab hides them, right? And then, you know, in exchange for a safe passage out of the city for the spies, they say they will spare her and her household when Israel does come, you know, the walls of Jericho fall down, that whole scene. All she had to do was hang a scarlet cord uh, from her window so they'd know which house was hers. So she agrees, she hides the spies. When the king of Jericho sends messengers, she lies and she says they've left when they haven't and they flee, the whole thing. It's a great story with lots of lessons. But, but she's a harlot, which is why they could get away with it. There were men coming and going all hours of the day. So another few men coming and going wasn't a big deal. And then she lied to keep them safe. What do you say that's good about her? Well, you say she's a woman of faith. Don't take my word for it. Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith, Rahab. She's a believer, and her lie was motivated by faith. And when the invasion came, she spared, she was spared in the course of time. And she becomes the great, great grandmother of King David. A harlot, Canaanite, a liar, but a woman of faith. Woman number three, you like her a little bit better, Ruth. Ruth is mentioned, but she's not a Jew either. She's a Moabite. Do you know where the Moabites came from? The Moabites came from when Lot, you know, flees and his wife turns into a pillar of salt and his, and his daughters, well, we got to raise up kids. So they, one gets them drunk one night and does their thing. The second one, the second night does their thing. And they get the Moabites and the Ammonites. That's it. That's the story of incest that would found a nation. And the Jews hated the Moabites and the Ammonites. And they wanted nothing to do with them. But the book that bears her name tells the love story of this romance that blossomed between Ruth the Moabitess and Boaz the Israelite. A very unlikely couple, but they were brought together by the providence of God. They had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David, making Ruth David's great-grandmother. A person from Moab into the line and the genealogy of the Savior. Woman number four, we didn't even get her name. The last woman mentioned, it says, she who had been Uriah's wife. 
So Bathsheba. You know the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba. And you know that adultery was really only the beginning of that saga. And before the royal scandal was over, it included lying and a cover-up and murder. And the child that was conceived between them died at childbirth. And after that, David's empire began to crumble. It's quite a result for a union that began with adultery. She would eventually be the mother of Solomon, the wisest, but there's dirt all over this story. But what's the point? Bathsheba made the list. Why are there women in this genealogy? It would be complete without them. He didn't have to include them. To discover the answer to the why is going to give us a clue as to where Matthew is taking us in this gospel. He's leading us somewhere. He's painting the picture that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah. But he's also doing something else. There's an arc in the trajectory of this story. And it's very clear by the end of the book. The last two verses, clue. Here's where it's headed, verse 28, chapter 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You see, even as Matthew is beginning his story, he is emphasizing that very fact, that God, what God is going to do through a thoroughly Jewish Messiah, the legitimate Messiah, is that he is forming a new family. That new family is going to include who? Men and women. Jews and Gentiles. And this new family is going to have a mission, and that mission is going to include the entire world. And if you watch carefully, you will see that theme emerge well before Matthew 28. But we have here in Matthew 1 a clue. The master plan is to create a new family of faith of men and women, Jews and non-Jews. That's why they're there. Number question four, what are the lessons? Ooh, what are the lessons we learned today? I think we explored this text enough to draw some conclusions that Matthew intended. I'm going to phrase our lessons today as personal questions that we should be asking about how we're living. Question number one is this. Am I among the self-righteous who need to hear what Matthew says? Well, the answer is, I'll answer it for myself. Uh, yes. Matthew was written especially to the Jews. And many of their leaders, Pharisees in particular, were self-righteous and judgmental toward others. Just like us. They really thought they deserved eternal life. Just like us. And what a shock it would be to read this genealogy because it's filled with liars and murderers and thieves and adulterers and harlots. It's not a pretty picture. It's not a clean family tree. Jesus' family tree has skeletons in the closet. This is a stinging rebuke to the kind of judgmental self-righteousness. Because you know what this means? Jesus is born into a sinful family. He came from a long line of sinners. 
He came to save that long line of sinners. And it begins with the realization that I am that sinner he came to deliver. So I either sit in judgment on his family tree or I'm humbled because of what it says to me. Question two, am I among those who need a fresh reminder of God's grace? I go back to that question, who are these women? Three are Gentiles. Four, three are involved in some sort of sexual immorality. Two are involved in prostitution. One's an adulteress. And yet they're all four in the line of Christ. And I would ask, why does Matthew include these four women? Why not the little more godly, Sarah's and the, you know, the other ones? I don't think Matthew's point is just to make sure to include some women. He doesn't mention the women on the more godly side of the spectrum. So my opinion, since he mentions these women, it makes us pause a little bit and look at what? Everybody in the list. And when you begin to look at the men surrounding these women, and you begin to study their lives in detail, it's almost as if God has pulled together a rogues gallery that he is going to use as his ultimate solution to sin in the world. Because what we know about these people, the men in this genealogy, is they had some notable failures. Abraham lied about his wife. Isaac did the same thing. Jacob's a cheater. Judah's a fornicator. Solomon's a polygamist. Manasseh, the most evil king Israel ever had. And on and on it goes. These aren't plaster perfect saints. The best of these men and women had flaws, and some were slow, had so many flaws, you can't even point to a good thing about them. Which brings me to what? A fresh reminder of the grace of God. It shows the grace of God because these people make up Jesus' family tree. A murderer, a fornicator, an adulterer. These people were great sinners. And when you read the stories of these men and women, you aren't supposed to focus on their sin. You're supposed to focus on the grace of God. He's the hero of this story. And his grace shines through the blackest of human sin. Question three. Have I forgotten that this story is really all about Jesus Christ, the Messiah? People are intimidated by him. We get get enamored with the, the paraphernalia of religion and the huge cathedrals which are intended to overwhelm us and the choirs and the organs and the formality of it all. And we look at the trappings and it's all very intimidating. And you think, ah, Jesus is just too good to be true. But this genealogy is in the Bible to let you know that he has a background like yours and mine, colorful to say the least. Yet they called him the friend of sinners He said, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. The point is this. No matter what your past, Jesus can save you. Because it's all about him. Are there murderers hearing my voice? Any prostitutes? Any adulterers? Any liars? Any cheaters? Any people who struggle with anger? or thieves, or hypocrites. This text is good news. No matter what you've done, Jesus can forgive you. If a prostitute can be saved, you can be saved. 
If a murderer can be transformed, you can be transformed. It doesn't matter what your past looks like or what your present feels like. No matter what you've been or done, God says, I'm here to give you a fresh start. There's a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain. And you're going to get together with your family this Christmas and you're going to experience what? A lot of brokenness and a lot of pain. But God knows exactly what you're going through. And this unlikely list of unlikely people may be the greatest paragraph in all of the scriptures about the grace of God. If these forgotten names from the past, God turns his spotlight on them, we are to see his holy grace that what he can do through men and women. This is good news. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Call on the name of Christ and you'll be saved. He didn't come to make us religious. He didn't come to make us pious. He came to save us. He came not for moral reformation, but for eternal life. And it may seem odd, but the truth of the matter is this. The worse you are, the better candidate you are for the grace of God. Because he came to do that which you cannot do for yourself. He came to save you from your sins. The same grace that Rahab experienced is available to us. So come for forgiveness. Come. He's made the first move. The king is here. And Matthew opens with Jesus ticking the very first box. He is qualified to be the Messiah. Do you remember the goals we set out for December at Peninsula? Twofold. That in the midst of this crazy world, we might enjoy some peace. That we can relax and rest. The king is here. And no matter what we've done, we can, we can rejoice in that. A songwriter puts it, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We want peace. And second goal is that in the midst of this crazy world, we might deepen our sense of the fear of the Lord. Because if the king is here, we bow down in humble reverence. And in this text, we've learned what the grace of God has done. The songwriter continues, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail." with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for speaking to our lives and into our world through a list of names. You have worked with grace to bring a Savior through a bunch of people who, who failed to tell us, a people who have failed, where to find hope and grace and peace and worship in a world that argues against it. In Jesus' name, amen.